to not, not to introduce his mom as his old lady. So, um, but anyway, uh, it is really exciting to be with you all tonight. And for Reed and I get a chance to share, you know, that at a seminar like this and a workshop like this, we get to do some things that we, that they're a little bit different. And it's a, it's a, a cool thing that I get to talk with Rita as we open up the series. If you are familiar with, uh, with speaking, the opening night sometimes on a, on a, a series, a, a lectureship or a workshop can be an introduction. And so it's sometimes hard to make it interesting. So I want to make a deal with you that I will do, and Reed and I will do our very best to make it interesting if you will try to listen like it's interesting, okay? And so if we get that together, some incredible things are happening. Our theme for the year is Beautiful Feet. And it's taken out of a passage that the Apostle Paul, as he speaks to the Romans, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news upon the mountains. But while that was the context that I heard it growing up, because I was drug up in church and, and, and I at least caught some stuff by osmosis, it didn't originate with Paul. Like much of Paul's writings, you find out when you read the Old Testament, that he takes a quote from the Old Testament and lets us see the fulfillment of it in its grandest way in the New Testament. And so tonight, our assignment is Beautiful Awakenings, and it kind of struck me for College students and high school students, beautiful awakenings is anything afternoon, right? And so you guys, that's a beautiful awakening. But that's not really the topic we're talking about. We're talking about coming alive to what God is doing. And over and over again in Scripture, you will see that God has to challenge his people to wake up. It's an Old Testament phenomenon. It is a New Testament phenomenon. And quite frankly, right now it's a phenomenon. And one of the things that you would look and see maybe a little bit would be odd is if you were to look at the people that they're addressing, whether it would be Old Testament, New Testament, or right now, they don't appear to be sleeping. I know some of you probably are, are people who sleepwalk. I sometimes do that. Whenever I'm stressed, I'll lose track of where I'm at, and my wife will find me wandering around doing something. And I've been told stories of people who look like they're awake. My son, Carrie, had night terrors when he would grow up. When he was young, and we would talk to him for 15 minutes, he could answer us, and as soon as he laid down, the screaming started again. With the sleeping that's going on within the Old Testament that Isaiah confronts, that Paul is, is going to confront in the New Testament, that we're going to confront tonight, the problem is, is that everybody that's asleep is active. They're doing something, they're moving along. And so tonight when we talk about waking up, you may think that because you're here that this doesn't apply to you because obviously you got here, you drove here, you're here, you drank coffee or you know, had something to eat, so you're awake, but that's not necessarily the case. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. He says, this is why it said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now again, I want you to just notice in that that there's this, this contrast that's there. He says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. They're obviously not dead yet, but they're so close to being dead in their relationship with Christ. They're so asleep that it's almost, they almost die. And what Paul understands is that he doesn't address that issue in them, they will die. But he also understands that there's a chance that they will rise up, that they will wake up, and God's light will shine on them. This weekend, I hope there are some of you who are completely awake already, that you're completely committed to what God does and what God is doing, that you're not just here because everybody else is here, because your parents expected to be here, and you're here with a groan and a moan, and you would really rather be sleeping in your bed than sleeping in your spiritual walk 
this morning, this evening. I hope you're here and you're, you're somebody who is on fire. And if you are, God is going to do incredible things for you. But we also hope this weekend that for some of you who are like that, you are asleep in your spiritual walk. And even though your activity, physically you're here, you're as close to dead spiritually as you could possibly be, and there is little hope for you unless you wake up. And it is my prayer, and our prayer this weekend, that we will give a push to those who enthusiastically are doing God's will, and that we will rattle the cages and wake up those of you who might be sleeping and are near death. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You're going to find out in Scripture, when somebody is asleep, there is always an urgency that's associated with it. Where, man, you need, you need to wake up, you need to be careful. You need to be careful because of where you are in your walk with God, But he also knows that if you don't wake up, there's going to be collateral damage. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, the Apostle Paul said this, to live like this is all the more urgent. He says, man, and he's just talked to him about living for Christ in a sacrificial way. To live like this is all the more urgent, for time is running out. And you know how it's a strategic hour in human history. It's time to wake up, for our full salvation is nearer than we had first believed. I believe that what Paul is talking about probably in the context of Romans is the destruction of Jerusalem, the persecution of the church. And he goes, man, you guys have got to wake up because it is so important in this time. But I think if you would fast forward to this church, into this time, there is a war that's going on in the world. And it seems at times that the darkness is winning. And for those of us who are struggling with staying awake, darkness can be very appealing because that's when you sleep. And so it's so urgent that when we talk to you this weekend about waking up, that you do that. Now, the passage that Paul speaks of in the book of Romans that we got our theme from, Beautiful Feet, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52. And and when you go back into Isaiah, there are three times that Isaiah says, wake up. He doesn't only say, wake up. He says, wake up, wake up, or awaken, awaken. And out of all of the rest of the Bible, there are only, there's only one other place to where it's repeated with that kind of sense of urgency. Isaiah is one of the most messianic prophets. That is, Isaiah talks about Jesus more than almost every other prophet. And as we read through the book of Isaiah, you've got to sort of almost skip a timeline where you realize when he's talking about something back in his day, and it has an immediate fulfillment in his day, he's really talking about something more significant that's going to be going on later on. And that happens over and over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. So tonight, that's why it's important that you go, okay, what he's saying back then, yeah, it looks like he's saying it for them back then, but Isaiah found his excitement and his fulfillment not only in the repentance of the people in his day, but the future when he would look at the people of God who are following Jesus with hearts that were fully devoted. So what Isaiah says to them, what Isaiah says to encourage or to challenge them, he says, us. 
And that's what the scriptures even teach. In Romans chapter 15, 4, the Bible says that forever, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Old Testament wasn't written for the Old Testament people. Isaiah wasn't making a memoir for himself. Moses wasn't writing a book in the Bible for Moses. It wasn't written for those people. They're dead when it's written. It's written for us, and Paul says in Romans, listen, it's meant to encourage you. And tonight I hope that we encourage you this evening. I hope that you look at the scriptures and you're spurred to do something because you see God doing something then, and you go, man, I want to see that too. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul writes this. He says, all things that happened, all these things happened for a reason to sound a warning. They were written down and passed down to teach us. They were meant especially for us, because the beginning of the end is happening in our time. So let even the most confident believer remember their examples and be very careful not to fall as some of them did. Paul in Romans says, man, I want through the encouragement of the scriptures to motivate you to live well. And in 1 Corinthians says, I want to warn you. I want to challenge you. I want to let you know that things aren't going to turn out well if you imitate their example. And for some, I hope that you're just fully encouraged, but for some, I hope you have a sense of urgency and a sense of warning. And the problem with it, honestly, for those of you who need warning, you're the people who have probably been the sleepiest. And you have probably been like, you know, if you've ever talked to your friends, whether it's a teenager or a college student, you've talked to somebody, and when they're half awake, they get about half the message and they apply none of it. That's some of us here this evening. But I'm praying that this weekend that that'll change that we'll have an awakening, all our own, an awakening of incredible significance that someday in eternity, that even God might look back at this weekend when he greets you and says, that weekend, I remember when you woke up and you decided to live alive and awake for me. In the book of Isaiah, there are three awakenings, three times where he says, awake, awake, What we're going to do to introduce this weekend is we're going to look at those three things that Isaiah called that people to and and, and mentioned in his day. Because while it was for them, it was specifically for us. So Rita's going to give you the very first call that Isaiah gave and that you and I need to. So women, I want you to listen up. I'm talking to you tonight, and all the guys that are here, you can kind of eavesdrop and listen in on our conversation. But I really am talking to you tonight. And the first... Awakening call is I call out for an awakening of God's empowerment. In Isaiah 51, verse 9, it says, Isaiah says, Wake up, wake up, O Lord, clothe yourself with strength, flex your mighty right arm, rouse yourself as in the days of old when you slew Egypt, the dragon of the Nile. And I kind of chuckle a little bit when I was reading this because I'm like, it's almost like Isaiah is trying to talk God up. Like, hey, you remember the time, right, you know, rise up, uh, show us your mighty right arm here, you know, and I do that to Robert sometimes when I want him to do some work, and I'm like, I know you can do it, babe, you got this, go watch YouTube and we'll do it, you know, uh, show me your muscles and let's, let's do this, you know, and I kind of feel like in this, that he's kind of giving God this little pep talk, and he's saying, you know, you slew the Egyptians, you remember this? He said, and Pharaoh, 
when he talks about the dragon of the Nile, he's talking, they think that he's talking there about Pharaoh. And he's like, you was able to do this, God. You was able to slew the Egyptians and the dragon, Pharaoh. But Isaiah, in all of this, for some reason, he doesn't see God working today. Or he wouldn't be saying this. He's like, wake up. Don't you remember when you did this? So I'm looking at, I'm going, is Isaiah saying, I... God, I don't see you working like that today. And I can't be down on Isaiah for that because how many of us have done the same thing? There are times in, in Robert and I's ministry and in, our, in my life that I can remember thinking, God, I'm out here. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. I'm not the best that you've got, but you got me and I'm trying. But where are you, God? I don't see you working. I need your help. Please help me. And I, I don't think I'm the only one that's ever felt this way. But I have felt that way many times. In Isaiah 51.10, he goes ahead and says, Are you not the same today, the one who dried up the sea, making a path of escape through the depths so that the people could cross over? Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. Now, I know you all probably won't understand this because you're young. There's a few older people in here that might understand this. But when I was a child, we would, I think, it was, I think it was on Sunday nights, Mike, help me out here. We would go home, we would rush home from our Sunday night service to go home one time a year to watch a show that was going to be on TV. We'd get in front of the TV and we were so excited because we were going to, we was going to sit there and watch the Ten Commandments. How many people remember that? It, it, was, it was awesome. You guys like could see it you know, over and over and over and over again. But that was one time a year we got to do that. And I loved it. I loved sitting in front of that TV and watching God's power. I, I still love going to the ocean. I still love going to the mountains. I love seeing God's power and the things that he's made. It's amazing to me. It's awesome. And I, and I remember as a little girl going and saying, this is so cool. This is awesome. But God, why aren't you doing anything today? I remember thinking that. And I think Isaiah is the same way. I think Isaiah was longing for God to do something again. He knew the stories were real, but he's saying, God, can you do it again? You know, and for me, sometimes I think I'm the same. I'm like, do I really believe that God's going to work like this again? Do I believe that God's going to do this again? Um, and I think just with going through the book of Acts with our uh, churches, the last chapter, you explain to that. To be continued. You, yeah, to That's be continued. I feel like sometimes, I don't, I don't know if I believe that the way I should believe it. Is God really going to continue his work through us? More, more so through me. Is he going to be able to do this? And just like Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3.2 says, God, I've heard that what our ancestors say about you, and I've stopped in my tracks, down on my knees. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. And as you bring judgment, as surely as you surely must, remember mercy. And I look at this, and I'm like, He's saying, I've heard what happened with the ancestors, but I want, I, I, I want to see this again in my life. You know, he says, I am in awe of what you did. I am stopped dead in my tracks. I am down on my knees. Do that again amongst us. Work amongst me like that. 
And then I think a little bit, he adds a little bit, it's kind of funny, he says, and as you bring judgment, as you surely must, because we are humans and we are going to screw things up, remember mercy. And I like how he throws that in. Remember mercy here. Um, So the Church of Christ, I don't know how many of you have grown up in a Church of Christ, but I grew up in the Church of Christ. And one of the things that's saddest to me is to know that the Church of Christ, some of its glory days, was back in the 50s whenever the church was growing like crazy. And now I look at Churches of Christ all across our area, and I don't know about where you all live, but they're dying. They're closing doors all the time. And it's sad to me. That's so sad to me. Because, the, you know, the call of God is to awaken may be made with my lips, but it's amplified with my life. How many times did Israel do use their lips and cry out to God, They used them, but they weren't using their heart. They were calling out to God over and over again. They would, and then they would sin again and fall back into stuff. They were calling out with their words, with their lips, but not with their heart in their life. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3 says, Listen now, the Lord isn't too weak to save you, and he isn't getting deaf. He can hear when you call, but the trouble is that your sins have cut you off from God. Because of sin, he has turned his face away from you and will not listen anymore. So you can imagine Isaiah crawling out to God and wanting him to answer. But what Isaiah knows is that he isn't going to answer if he's not listening. When Habakkuk says, God, I want to see you do again what you did before, he says, and when you render judgment like you must, remember mercy... What Habakkuk and Isaiah both recognize is if God is going to get involved in a way that's going to change these people, he's going to have to discipline them. Because their greatest problem is not God's lack of power. It's not his short arm. It's not his deaf ear. It's that they're not living the way that they want to. So Habakkuk is going, God, man, we want to see great things happen, but man, take it as easy on us as you can. Because you see, all through time, the duplicity of God's people their unwillingness to be all in, their unwillingness to be fully completed, com- committed, the duplicity of God's people has always played a role in the defeat of God's people. The hypocrisy of those who call out to God has caused God not to, to answer. And even though they want that, they want that incredible victory, they want great things to happen in them and through them, it can never happen because, you see, God doesn't listen to us unless we're listening to him. And that really leads us to the second call to awaken out of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah 51. And the second call you and I need to make is I call out for an awakening of personal repentance. I've called out to God and said, awaken, wait, God, get down here, get involved, make things different, give us victory again, do for us what you did for them. And God says, I am willing, but it's going to take you turning to me. In Isaiah 59, 18, he says, Wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You've drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You've drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drop. Not one of your children is left alive to take your hand and guide you. At this time, the nation of Israel is enslaved. And they're mistreated, and they're being abused, and they're calling out to God, and God is saying, it was not accidental that you are where you are. I am disciplining you. And I'm somehow trying to get your attention to turn you to me. 
And God will allow that discipline to continue until we begin to accept the responsibility that the power outage in our lives and the power outage in our church is not because there's not a source of power, but because we have disconnected from the power. He continues in Isaiah 51 and he says, these two calamities have fallen on you, desolation and destruction, famine and war. And who is left to sympathize with you? Who is left to comfort you? For your children have fainted to lie in the streets, helpless as antelopes caught in a net. The Lord poured out his fury. God has rebuked them. He says, you're all alone, and nobody is there to sympathize with you. There is nobody there to help you but you. And when it comes to personal repentance, it is wonderful to be a part of a church that's active. It's wonderful to be a part of a junior high or a campus group or a high school group or adult group where there is accountability. But the truth is you can have an accountability partner and lie to him if you're not committed to God. You can be in the middle of an incredibly encouraging small group and be deceptive within that small group. And the bottom line is, as your life begins to fall apart, there may, it may continue if you're not listening to God and you might find yourself all alone and broken. You're going, God, there is nobody to sympathize with me. But God would reply, but there is somebody who can repent. There is somebody that can awaken. There is somebody to decide they're not going to sleep through their spiritual walk. And regardless of them even being alone in this, God understands that while there is no human to help them, he is there to help them. And if he is there, one human being that re and that's repented with God can overcome the mightiest of kingdoms of the world. In Romans chapter 2, is that yours? No. Paul, but if you go back, Paul in Romans chapter 1 addresses the Gentiles, and he talks to them just about how ungodly they are. If you go back and read the chapter, I mean, he lets them have it there about their ungodliness. And the Jews were kind of like... Have what? you ever read in a sermon where somebody that you didn't like was getting beat up by the preacher? You know, there have been times I've heard the preacher preach, and I'm going, yeah, my wife needs that, okay? You know, at that moment... No, you're going, that, that's, that's, you know, that's, and we're all, He's you know, taken my point. I am, you're saying amen and everything. That's kind of what's going on here in Romans. Go right. ahead, sorry. It's like the little dogs that they used to put in the back of the wind, windows of grandma's car. I don't know how many of you remember those. Now they make little animals and all kinds of little things. And, and so you're driving along and, and they were, you know, the Jews were going, that's right. The little dog nodding his head, that's right. You'd get those Gentiles. They are bad. They are evil, blah, blah, blah. And then you come to chapter two. And in verse 20 and 24, it says, You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God? For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from the pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. At least the Gentiles could claim ignorance, but you're just flat out rebellious. And I think their heads probably went and just stopped for a minute. So, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think it's really easy to blame a culture. You know, we get he mad. He can't at help the, himself. We get mad at the culture up there. There's nothing else on there. So um, she's got it on hers. She, print, she printed an extra set of notes and didn't show it to me, didn't you? 
maybe. Uh, <laughs> it is easy to be mad at our culture, but I'm not really sure that Christ is concerned with our culture, and I don't mean he doesn't care for our culture, but he knows there's a cure for the culture, and that is him and the church. In Romans 1 and 2, the Jews are furious with the Gentiles, and he goes, and, and, and God is saying, they're a bunch, they don't care about God. And in chapter 2, he goes, yeah, they don't care about God because of your hypocrisy and your inconsistency. And God lets him know that their hope is in your hope. And that's one of the reasons why hypocrisy is so dangerous. It doesn't only leave the person who's the hypocrite lost. Jesus said, for those who are hypocritical, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, the real tragedy is, that's your choice, but you won't allow those to enter who are trying. So both the person who is, claims to be a follower of Christ doesn't get to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, and he blocks the road to the seekers who are genuinely seeking, and then a, a tragedy that's even deeper, he says, then when you go out and you win a single convert, you go over to land overseas, remember, you to win a single convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. The seeker is, the, the, the person who's supposed to be saved is lost, the seeker is lost, and that spirit is contagious. And that's what happened in the nation of Israel, by the way. That those who were supposed to uphold the light didn't, and so the people that came around them, the kids that followed them, became just like them. And it became contagious to where it became a national pandemic of sin. And if they're going to have anything change, it's going to start with an awakening within the the people who claim to be God's people. Uh, what I was going to say was in one sentence that he just said in like three paragraphs. In our family, it's not the women that have all the words and talk much. It's the men, I'm just saying. But I was going to say, it's not because the culture is ungodly, but it's because the church is ungodly. Don't blame the culture. Repent personally. It's up to you. Rita has much more experience with short than I do too also. So anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's not on my notes either, by the way. <laughs> but what I want you guys to know is God is working in these people. Sometimes you look back and go, God, if you read what happened to the, Egypt, the, the Israelites under the oppression of the Babylonians, which is what is going on in Isaiah, you go, God, how could you let that happen? How could you let their lives fall apart? How could you let them be so, so mistreated? And ultimately, it was an act of God's grace. The Babylonian captivity was an act of God's grace because what they deserved was to be cut off and go to hell, but God gave them the Babylonian captivity. For the prodigal son, he deserved to die and go to hell, but in God's grace, he gave him a pig pen, a place from which he could return. You see, in Hebrews, a book of scriptures written to Hebrew Christians, in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble and weak arms and arms and knees. Make level paths for your feet so the lame may, be not be, may not be disabled, but rather healed. You see, God was not simply punishing his people. He was preparing them for blessing. He was doing everything that he could to get their attention to turn him back and the consequences of their behavior, which they hated, and initially they would blame him for just like we do when we get busted out. They were all designed to bring about God's blessing. The question if you're a child of God is not, will I be disciplined? 
Because the Hebrew writer says everyone undergoes discipline. The question is, will I be trained by it and therefore be blessed by it and someday be blessed eternally, or will I never benefit from it and simply be cut off? It's a question, will I be healed or will I be disabled in the passage? Will I be healed to become able to be what God wants me to be, or will I be rendered unable? And here's the thing. Discipline's always unpleasant, but what the writer is teaching, if I respond to discipline incorrectly, if I get angry and I resent it, it will not allow me. I disable myself. I prevent myself from being able to change. That's why it's so important that when we struggle and that God disciplines in whatever form that might look like with, the, with Isaiah, it's an it's a, a evil king. With, with, in the church, it might be an evil campus minister. Right? You know, somebody, some really evil small group leader, and I'm saying that facetiously. But your blessing is connected to your willingness to respond to discipline, even if you don't like it in the right way. And God will turn up the heat. He'll use somebody that loves you to tell you the truth. And if you won't listen someday later on, he'll give somebody now, and it may be your wife that used to love you, who now hates you, that walks out the door to say, I'm not living with somebody like you. But he'll keep disciplining. But the more you resist him, the more likely you are to become disabled on a spiritual level, unwilling and unable to do what God calls you to do. And in the book of Hebrews, he later on in chapter 12, he gets on him pretty hard. He says, you know, even though we speak to you about this, we're, we're confident of better things. And I'm confident for you guys of better things. But I think that we all need to have this challenge to go, listen, am I living full-hearted? Am I living completely to God? Am I a, a, a sincere believer? Or am I hypocritical, semi-believer? And we need to allow God to challenge us this weekend to awaken out of our stupor. You see, it's not that God doesn't want us to do great things. God wants us to do great things. In Luke 13, 34, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killer of prophets, abuser of the messengers of God, how often have I longed to gather your children, gather your children like a hen, her brood safe under her wings, but you refused and turned away. As a mom, I can relate to this. As a grandma, I can relate to this. As a Grammy, I relate to this. And as a great Grammy, I relate to this. There's so many times that I've wanted to, to get my kids and to get my grandkids and now my great-grandkids and gather them under my wing and protect them and say, don't do this. Don't go down that path. <laughs> don't make me cry, Jack. Um, my grandson's up here smiling at me. But both of them. <laughs> but all three of them. <laughs> But there's many times that I've wanted to do that, to protect them, like, and like a mother hen protects her babies, and say, don't go down that path. Don't go that way. Please don't go that way. But I couldn't always do that. I could pray, and I did a lot about that. But they, they had to make their own decisions and their own choices at times. And the problem is, like he says here, but you, you refused and turned away. The problem is we personally sometimes are just unwilling to repent, to repent ourselves. We're unwilling. We can't do it for anybody else, but we can for ourselves. We have to be willing to repent. 
In the end of Luke 13, 35, notice what it says, and now it's too late. It's a time where he says to these Jewish people who had a chance to he goes, it's too late for you now. You've got a point of no return. Not because God doesn't want to help you, but you become so hardened that I can't help you. And that's a scary thing. It's something I struggled with when I was growing up because I wasn't a good kid. I was in trouble everywhere I went. And I understood the Bible says that I can become so hard-hearted. Not that God wouldn't forgive me if I would repent. I can become so hard-hearted that I can't repent. Not because of somebody else, but because of my choices. So I need to call out for an awakening of repentance. And then finally, the third call of Isaiah, the awake-awake, the double emphasis. I call out for an awakening of confident expectation. In Isaiah 52.1, he says, awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the whole city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. You see, what God's people had done had left them enslaved and hopeless. And maybe that's where you are tonight. But what God wanted to do would lead them to emancipation and hope from being beaten down to raising up. And it's incredible because the imagery that he uses in Isaiah 52 is that of a woman rising. And so I said, Rita, man, I want you to talk about this section because it's a beautiful picture of God restoring in the midst of the most powerful kingdom of its time with God's power, even the weakest among them being able to rise to something completely different. Are you done? I'm done. Okay. (laughs) Just checking. Verse 2, like Robert was saying in Isaiah 59, verse 2, it pictures the broken people of God as an enslaved female. And why female? Why did it have to be an enslaved female? Why did he look at that? And I think Robert and I talked a little bit about this, that maybe it's because she's the weaker person. And ladies, we are the weaker. We don't like that sometimes, but physically we are. That's, what, that's how God made us. We are the weaker. And maybe God wants the people to know that just that their utter hopelessness of their own strength, you know, that they were incapable of winning the battle unless, you know, they were connected to the one who brings victory to God, that it wasn't on their own, that they were connected to the one who would bring them victory. It says, arise, it tells, it tells her, it says, arise and clothe yourself with strength, O captive daughter of Zion. The verses here that, if you go back and read this, are a political description, poetic, sorry, description of the freeing of a female who's being held captive in slavery and is designed to represent a complete victory of the church over persecution. So she's called to arise. It says, arise, arise, shake the dust off her shame. End your mourning. It's time to get up. Stop laying there. Stop just mourning. It's time to arise. Put on the beautiful garments. And when I went back and just studied a little bit about what that meant, the garments, it talked about it being the festive robes that the priest wore. And sit down like a lady and relax. Jerusalem or Zion is described as a castaway, given over for a time by God, the power of the wicked Babylonians. Now her restoring time has come. I love that. It says, her restoring time has come. The church's time has come. She is to put on again 
the garments and to act in faith. I love that. I just love the, the imagery of that, that it's time for us to do that now. You know, the restoring time has come for the church. It's time for us to put on those clothes, to get up, to arise, to awaken. The captive daughter of Zion, brought down to the dust of suffering and oppression, is commanded to arise and shake herself from that dust, and then with grace and dignity and composure and security to sit down, to take her seat again and rank as God's chosen people. Don't you love that? They were God's chosen people. You know, ladies, it's cool that it pictures the nation of Israel as a confident woman, as a secure woman, but that was not me as I grew up in the church. As a matter of fact, uh, it sometimes stole that confidence from me, and it sometimes stole that security from me. I feel like I was kind of told just to sit in the pews and speak when spoken to. I was afraid to pray out loud, even in front of my husband when we got married. Um, and that's sad. That's so sad to me. When I look back on it now, you know, there was nothing about women discipling other women. And I look at our church and our churches, and I'm like, what would our churches be like if that's the way we were? If, if I can't even imagine what the crossings, all of the plants and everything, I can't even imagine what we would look like if that's who we were, if we were the ones that were just supposed to sit there and be quiet and not disciple and work with other women, not teaching them to pray. You know, the Bible even talks about the older women training the younger women, and it makes me sad. It makes me really sad. So, go ahead. And I think what, what Reed is, you know, is saying is, man, what, what a tragedy would be for our movement. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have you ladies, mm -hmm. it would be... Cell leaders, zone leaders. So many things. But it's not just about the ladies. It's about the beautiful bride of Christ, the church. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredible thing that, that he ends it with this chapter saying, man, you need to know that all of this is behind you. And it sort of begins this secular reality then you need to have this confident expectation. Why? Because you have repented, and now God is connected with you, and you are now empowered. And God gives you this ability to do greater than you've ever imagined. And as we begin this weekend, there are campus ministries, there are churches that are represented here that are struggling. And they're struggling because the individual members, some of them are struggling and having a vision for what God would do. And you just settle in and going, ah, this is just kind of my fate. I'm God's child. And I'll just sit here with my head beat, bent over and I'll sing when I need to. But I really don't expect to walk down a celebration with my head held high and the glory of God following me around. And this weekend, it's a call to awaken to that reality that that's what God can make you. And that's what God can make your church. But he can't make your church that unless you're willing to participate. Mm -hmm. Unless you're willing to wake up, to shake yourself from the stupor of where you are and understand that God has called you to greatness, to do, to do incredible things. In Acts 3.19, the apostle Peter is talking with a group of people. And he says, in the voice paraphrase, he says, so in, in verse 19, so now you need to rethink everything and turn to God so that your sins will be forgiven and a new day can dawn. And then repent and turn to God so a new day can dawn. Days of refreshing 
Times flowing from the Lord. Can you remember a time in your ministry, in your life as a Christian, to where you were refreshed and the good news was everywhere? The good news of a friend being influenced, the good news of somebody else becoming a Christian, the good news of a broken person being healed, the good news of an addict being free, the good news, and you went on and on and on. Well, the good news is that same God who did that wants to do it again. And if you'll wake up to that reality, turn yourself back over to him, you'll be awakened with a sense of anticipation that when you go home, God is going to do great things. Isaiah 30, um, 14 through 16 says, The Holy Lord, God of Israel, had told all of you, I will keep you safe if you turn back to me and calm down. I love how it says that. I will make you strong if you quietly trust me. It's, it's not about cheerleading. It's not about hype. It's about a confident trust. And it leads us to close with this verse in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. According to the power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, I know our worship team is going to be singing a song here in a little bit, but Father, I want to pray right now as they kind of come up here that you will help us to focus this evening with a sense of incredible anticipation about what you're going to do this weekend and when we go home. And the only tempering of that anticipation would be, would be based upon asking ourselves if we have really repented to expect you to work mightily in those who have not allowed you to work in them, to expect you to work through somebody who you've not, who's not allowed you to work in them is just a fantasy. And so Father, I pray right now that, that for everybody that's here, that, Father, you would speak to each heart and there would be a commitment right now to repent, to have a change of heart and mind that will lead to a change of action, but it starts in the heart and the mind. Father, it starts with a decision, not with a feeling. It starts with the truth of your word, not with the lies of Satan. And so I pray right now that people will be making that decision. For those that have been all in, that we're going to say, God, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to depend on you even more. And for those who, Father, they know they're not where they need to be, and Father, they in the past have tried to blame and tried to excuse and tried to justify that right now they'll just try to say they're sorry. And there'll be a godly sorrow that allows you to work repentance in their life so the rest of the weekend can be a celebration of what is going on, looking forward to what will happen because of it later on. So Father, I pray that you'll, uh, you'll move in our hearts and bless everybody that's here, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.